Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquire's Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. I hit the button. I hit the button and I had an extra large nitro coffee shot. So I'm firing about 12 cylinders more than I actually have at the moment. Nice. I'm I'm seeing the numbers behind the, I've entered the matrix. We're probably live. What's happening? Up, guys. Oh. This is a very we've got a much more symmetrical layout when there are four of us here. That's true. This is true. Yes. Two of us are pretty attractive people. I'm not gonna say which one they are, but their names are not Bill Brewster and Mike Mitchell. Oh, I'm, uh, <laughs> I was glad to make that <laughs> Both true and hurtful, sir. <laughs> yeah. Well, do it to myself. Well, it's been uh it's been an value after hours, just just in case everybody oh, knows we've okay. We've got uh, uh, Bill Brewster, Jake Taylor, and the Lumber Baron himself, Mike Mitchell, uh, for another week. Uh, No real idea what we're going to talk about this week, though. Can we talk about my hangover that I still have from last Thursday of hanging out with Bill Brewster in New York City? That's a good jumping off point. You can. (laughs) (laughs) I, I should say thank you to Shane Kleinstein for coming out. That was awesome. And thank you to everybody else who came out. That was a lot of fun. I really yeah, enjoyed. real talk. Uh, we had Liberty IR in the building, and I flew to New York, and we had a, a FinTwit meetup, and it was super fun. It was a super good time. Fun. And then we did misbehave a little bit, but you know what? Okay. New York City. I told Mike, you got to do it. I saw Mike for the first time in person. I told him that when I hugged him, it was as exciting as when I met my wife. Don't tell my wife that. But. <laughs> Hopefully I think she, she doesn't listen to this. We're still show. working. Yeah. We're still working on date three. <laughs> Because we had uh, breakfast after. Anyway, I digress. I don't know, man. Um, I've been thinking of two things. Uh, one, the role of hedging and like, you know, just kind of I joke a lot about it being like middle innings or whatever. Um, and I know that a lot of froth has come out of the market. But but one thing that Mike and I were talking about when we were sitting at breakfast is like just the amount of people that are day trading stuff right now is like overall a little concerning. I got in my Uber on the way home and the guy's telling me about, you know, people that he's driving around that are day trading crypto. Uh, you it's know, it's not just day trading, it's day trading successfully, you know, thinking like, I don't need to work. I mean, that's really the stuff. The day trading thing is one thing, but the fact that everybody's doing so well, I think is kind of, it's a little yeah, alarming. That's right. And like, you know, I mean, overall the, the level of risk taking is not uh low right so does it make sense to put on tactical hedges and then if so how do you go about it um that's one thing and then the other thing that i've been working on a lot is pershing square tontine holdings so those are the only things that i can really talk about hang on one sec real quick are you are you little splash here in the middle of the day good for you sir toby said he liked it last time so it's been about a year what, what are you on, JT, on the bang energy? Oh, no. Just a little bubbly, cherry, cherry bubbly. The hard and stuff. Where, where are you coming in from? 
I'm at a, uh, I'm in Reno, Nevada for a, a week long baseball tournament for my son. So we're, I'm in a, I'm in foreign surroundings. I don't have my books around me to keep me, keep me comfortable. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a little hot here as well. I was going to say, how's the weather? Uh, it's like being in a convection oven. It's like hot and windy. <laughs> you just put some uh, olive oil on the ground and crack an egg to cook it. Damn near. It's, it's pretty warm here, but yeah, that's okay. I'm, we're having a lot of fun. The boys are, uh, turns out there are some very, very large 13 year olds out there and they all got together on travel teams and came here to, uh, to spank us, uh, a lot. <laughs> so, but we'll, we'll see. We're, we're holding our own a little bit for being a little ragtag neighborhood team. That's dope. I hope he has a good time and remembers it for the rest of his life. Me too. For the cost. I would really hope that back in the day when I thought I was reasonably good at golf, I went out to Arizona to qualify for the national junior amateur. And, um, at the time my girlfriend was quite attractive and, um, I shot 75. I was pretty proud of my performance. I was like, all right, you know, I'll wake up. Cause I was one under coming in and I was like, all right, I'll tee off like, you know, early, but if I go deep, I got a shot. They were like, get here at 7 a.m. The leader shot 62. You're in like a hundredth. And I was just like, fuck it. I'm out. <laughs> figured, yes, well, what did the hot girlfriend have to, have to do with that story? Or is it just well, that you peaked? I think that's then? an important part of the story. Do not know that part of the story. It was the opportunity cost of continuing to try to get better. And I was like, I'm just going to give up golf for a bit. So now I can go out there and slap it around. And I learned a little something uh, outside the golf course too. not slap it around that way. Toby, come on now. I'm at the golf course. Anyway, <laughs> I disagree. Or I, I don't know what I do. I'm drinking. Uh, <laughs> so what are we was, talking about? Who wants to take it away? Well, so Bill's idea, the hedging conversation, I think is very Let's interesting. Let's and do it, that. And it, it, it dovetails nicely with the Burry deleted tweet and now apparently deleted account from last week uh, of, uh, again uh, he'll be back he off? i don't even know yeah he'll be back but the you know this is like the mother of all retail bubbles between crypto and gme and like meme stocks and crypto and then there was a, a response to that that was saying you know look he could be right he could be wrong but you know does it make sense to have a parachute it's like if i want to be flying high like i might as well parachute on and yeah, there's some logic to that. So then Bill and I launched this whole conversation of, well, if you were going to protect yourself, or you were going to buy an insurance contract, what contract would you buy? So I've done a little bit of thinking about that. Bill's telling me my thinking is probably incorrect, but it, it probably is actually. I'm not, this is not a, a strong suit of mine. This is not where I, I don't know that I said your thinking was incorrect. I just don't, I, th I think if, uh, it's not fully so, baked. Yes. Well, what's, what's your thinking just before we, yeah. before we hear the, or we tell you how dumb it is. Let's hear the thesis first. <laughs> I was going to well, set that up, Toby. The, the, they're, they're, the thesis is buy the best and cheapest protection you can get, right? So then, then you, so when you just, that's like blanket statements. So you throw that out and then you say, okay, well, let, let's go through and define each of the terms. Like, so what does it mean? What are we protecting ourselves from? That's the first thing you've got to really define because there's a lot of ways to protect yourself. Like last week, uh, Jake talking about buying fixed calls. That's one, that's one way to do it. It's a volatility call. There's spies, there's IDMs. You can do you know, or you could go to the specific factor. I happen to be long lumber, which is long housing. So I could go in and do a specific factor and, and short that. I think in the past when I've done it, I've taken that the, um, the bow post approach, which is, um, you know, 
you, you buy really, really cheap, way out of the money insurance when it's like basically they're giving it away. And the idea is, as we talked about last week, that it's it's premium wasted. So it's like my dis- I have a full crazy disability insurance. And I've convinced myself that I pay that much money every month to have disability insurance because if I do, there's no scenario in which I'll get disabled. Like the world will not let me get disabled because I'll make way too much money. So it's like this, you know, Murphy's <laughs> Law working in reverse. So I buy this, you know, crazy cheap disaster insurance. And if, if somehow it hits, like in March, April of 2020, it did hit. Um, it, there's a, a psychic income to it where you sort of like you're getting a check, you know, and so that you feel like you're ahead of the game. So you can play a little bit of offense. And then, of course, the check you can actually use to invest, which, of course, we know now that that was exactly what I do. So that's the way I've normally thought about it is buying like way, way, way um, out of the money um, like puts. Uh, I think the way Ackman did it was the better way to do it. I don't have access to CDS. I think he bought CDS, which was like a my payout was like 26 to one and his was like 201 or something. You could get like a put on uh, the uh, HYG or something like that. Probably right. gets yeah. you the same. You, you get on the website. Sorry, you broke up. A, a, HYG. Sorry. Okay, that's the, so high, the yield. high yield ETF. Yeah. And you could, because you, ETF. yeah, it trades in a pretty tight range. So you don't have to go very, and you don't have to go very far out of it to get, you know, before you get to those five cent options. Dude, which is what I have done in the past. You think the Fed's going to let you get there? Well, it, I, I have I have made money on them, but I've never cashed one because they've always expired out of the money. But I have like had them, you know, at the at the absolute nadir of the market. Like in, I remember the like I think it was two thousand eighteen or two thousand something like that. There was a big crash, and it, the bottom was like Christmas December twenty eighteen. Yeah. yeah, was that was it the one that was? Yeah, yep. I, I had HYG puts going into that, and struck like two dollars outside of, you know, like eighty four dollars. So I was struck at two eighty two dollars, something like that, and they paid off. They were like a third of my book, but they were expiring in like January twenty two. So I wanted to push it into the new tax year, plus I wanted to keep the protection on, and they expired worthless. Right. So I've done that a few Classic times. I've round tripped on everything. Yeah. yeah round tripped Thanks, on Yellen. So yeah. you can, from this point forward, just turn your microphone off. You're done with this conversation. We're gonna. Get... <laughs> yeah, sit this well, one this out, is... champ. <laughs> That's the old. Uh, don't make tax decisions when you should be making economic decisions. I, I, will, and... I, I will tell you that that is a million percent right, Bill. Good. Thank you for saying that. That is a million percent. That's a. That's I don't good follow point. it. <laughs> and every single yeah, every single yeah, amateur right. in my life was telling me to sell us to, to to close out that position and i was just like no no no. this is just the beginning of the move wait until we get wait until we're down another 30 percent from here in a month think how much they'll be worth then that's funny my wife my wife is telling me the opposite i, I wanted to close out that put in in april of 2020 and she was like why i mean we bought it right for it. this exact purpose she's like this is what we bought it for and now it hit now you want to close it out and I'm just like I was like, well, there's two outcomes. There's the outcome number one, we figure it out. There's a vaccine. We're all fine. And in that case, you want to get long stocks. Outcome number two, we all turn into zombies. And I'm going to walk around saying, don't eat me. I've got this put, you know, like, ooh. <laughs> yeah, Mike, is she, is she taking outside capital? <laughs> <laughs> uh, she's smarter than I am. She's a better yeah. investor than I am, too. She's a good partner. Don't you think that the, the, the part of the reason though that you have the hedge on is so that you can, I mean, there's, there's two, there's two arguments. One is that it, it creates that third pocket of cash that you then get 
long the market, which is why I always wonder if people who've got their money in hedge funds that are blow up hedge funds, like how do you get the redemption in order to get long at that time? That's, that's a challenge. The other thing though, is that you're using it like it's a hedge. So why would you take your hedge off? Um, you know, when you're in the middle of the volatility, when, you know, sometimes it's sort of acting psychically to allow you to operate on the long side and do all the sensible stuff on the long side that you should be doing. I, I don't have an answer to it. That's just what I think about. No, that's, that's exactly, I mean, my, the start of the conversation is how, how do you, what are you protecting yourself against? Right. And that, if you don't know that you shouldn't be protecting anything, right. You should just be going about your normal business. And if this was, I'm trying to protect against the end of the world, that's one thing you never sell it. Right. Cause you only set, you only, that one will only end of the world will either happen or it won't happen, right? So it's kind of binary. If you're giving yourself some psychic income, so you're just like the world, you know, look, liquidity's everywhere. We all feel it. I mean, we're all looking around going, God, stuff's expensive. We've all made too much money too fast. And it, it doesn't, it feels unnatural. And so, man, if, if there's a 30% drawdown from here, I'm going to be kicking myself because I knew this was a good time. And for whatever reason, I wasn't. If that's your approach, then in my mind, when you have the 30% drawdown, even though it feels exactly wrong, you just unload it. You're just like, that's what I was protecting myself against. I was not protecting myself against the end of the world. And you, by the way, you could do two, you could phase it. You could say, well, I want a 30% drawdown option and I want an 80% drawdown option into the world type Armageddon option. You could do both. It's expensive think, though, right? Now we're getting, now it's, it's, now it's getting expensive. That, that's, and that's the other side. When you, once you decide, you know, this is what I want to protect myself against, then you, that, that's when you go in and say, well, how much are you willing to spend? Right. And, that's where uh, I was giving, I listed a couple of options in, in Bill and I's Slack channel today. Like you could do it this way, you could do it that way. And my bias was to, well, at least the idea I had was uh, the most expensive put you can buy today is the at the money, it's not the most expensive, but the most expensive one I was looking at was the, was the at the money. So the S&P 500 400s, the SPY 400s, uh, Jan 22. Um, the APR on that is like 14% or something. And it's, it only buys you six, you know, six months of protection it's like seven percent is the cost you can get your apr from 14 down to seven ish if you go out to jan 2023 it's, it's twice as expensive but you have 18 months essentially so your apr is quite a bit better you know is, is a guy who's like just trying to make 10 percent a year paying somebody else seven percent for protection really creates a hell of a hurdle you know it's like my hurdle goes from 10 to 17 pretty quick uh so i don't know if that's the right way to do it but the, the idea i had as well you know what what would it look like if you sold the jan 2022s at 400 and then bought the jan 2023s at 400 and so you, you would cut the cost essentially in half of owning the jan 2023s but the risk we were we were thinking through is well of course you know if the market craps out between now and jan 2022 you know you're going to be long the market do you want to be long the market even though you can sell it for 12 months you know i, I can sell it 12 months from now at the exact same price i paid so i'm not taking price risk your opportunity cost could be gnarly, right? Because if you really get those shots, you won't your capital will be tied up in the S and P five hundred, even at no risk. But it'll still yeah, be you've tied got that up. you've got that big mark to market risk where that front month is going to be very volatile, and those back months won't move as much because there'll right. be some expectation that we'll get back to where we are. So you'll get you'll have some weird shape to your holding. You'll be you'll be down a lot on that front month, and you'll be not up enough on that back month. Are you suggesting there's no free lunch? Because I'm told <laughs> if I lend my crypto out, I can get like 15% guaranteed. So. Well, yeah, maybe that is a Can free I make lunch. a quick comment on that real quick? When I was hearing that pitch, in my head, I was like, this may imply some risk in the underlying. And that thought turned out to be fairly smart. Um, that said, sure, sorry to all the Bitcoin bulls. When I blew it and I interviewed Preston Pish, I wasn't trying to come at you, but I did call a top indirectly. 
Um, I, I think the top was Miami and cocaine. I think that was the top. I don't think that could have been. That could have been. That was the top. I don't, it still could work. I'm not. I mean, look, those guys, they have their own thesis. Um, yeah, that's what I was thinking, Toby. And that's what I said to Mike is I said, like, the problem with the hedging strategy, I think, is if let that like we were batting around is if the market does sell off and the event that you're hedging for does materialize, you basically like your trade is a debit trade, right? Because you're buying you're, you're back. The longer dated futures contract costs you money, more money than you're bringing in. But if the strikes are the same, when it sell when the market sells off, you basically like give up your debit, uh, and then I I think you forgo the opportunity to invest. So I think it's like perfectly not hedged. Well, I wonder if you what if you reverse. So is it are you are you hedging the front month and using the back month to fund it, or are you doing it the other way around? You hedging the back month and using the front month to fund it. Buying yeah. longer duration by selling shorter duration. See, I think that the call you might a call reaper might work better there. Like I think if you are if you use the if you hedge the front month and then sell the back month, doesn't that work a little bit better? Because that means you're you are financing it. But now the, Yeah, you're in the, a credit the, position out of the gate. The move is now in your favor. If you get a short term move, then the front month is going to move more than the back month is going to move. So if the market yeah. falls over, the front month is going to be the most sensitive and the back month won't move as much. Right. So you, you're better hedged in that instance. And then if it doesn't happen by the time your front month expires, then you just re, you just do it again and you just sell two of those back months to, or, or you know reverse the trade in the back month and then do it again. I think that would work a little bit better because that, I think you're better hedged in that instance. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, this is why I was saying last week, uh, gosh, I thought I had this somewhere, but I don't. I was saying this last week. I mean, when I go through this exercise of trading options, which I just don't think makes sense because I'm, I'm competing against guys like Ben who know this like cold, right? They, they, this is like, this is their, this is his wheelhouse. And I just think when I get to this table, so I was saying in Slack to Bill, when I, when I pull up to this broker table, I am the dumbest guy at the table. A hundred percent. I'm like the guy I walk in with a big target, like right here. And I'm it's real fat and juicy. And Ben is like, I'm taking that guy's money. You know, it's like, it's fine. It's like, but, but as you point out there, there are, you do have an advantage. Like the mathematical advantage is always Ben's uh, and Chris's and other guys like that. Like they've always got the mathematical advantage. And particularly if you're in VIX or something like that, they've got all of the advantage. You just about can't win there. But in individual names, in equities, in the options on individual equities, where you know that the distribution isn't normal or isn't you know the way that they've priced it, that's where you have the advantage, where the tail is fat to one side or the other. And you can harvest that asymmetry. That's where you're where the, win. where the map doesn't fit the terrain. There you go. Right. Where the where like the the the, the probability map doesn't fit the actual terrain. Yeah. Which if is I the greenblatt strategy. Pull it yeah. back a little bit, like in the less less abstraction from the options. I mean, if assuming that you're a business owner, which I think we all would like to think that we are of these companies, and assuming that you theoretically at least like the price that you own it at. What you're really sort of insuring against is kind of quotational risk of what you own. Now, you can choose to do that, or you can also self-insure that quotational risk through just your own mental fortitude of understanding what you own. And if Mr. Market shows up that day and has a crazy price, it doesn't have to necessarily affect you. Um, so you're, you're insuring kind of your psychology really. And, and one way of doing that is, is self-insurance, uh, which, and maybe if that requires you to hold more cash to 
pad your own mental ability to self-insure like your own little umbrella policy. Um, you know, I think, I don't think that's an unreasonable way to approach it either. No, it's, it's probably the preferred way, frankly, because it just, you cut out a lot of the complication, you cut out a lot the of the trading. It's just, yeah, yeah it's just a cash, right? What's the, you guys remember this, you're the experts, the, the well, longer story. Oh, Real quick, just taking a step back. And I, I know that people love when we get into personal finance, but like part of the issue <laughs> is Mike's got a big rights issue that he's dealing with. So he's got like a potential capital call on his end. I have an issue where I'm funding a, a business project and I don't know, you know, like, like my risk that I'm trying to guard against is having to sell at the bottom. And I don't have an income coming in that's consistent enough to be able to plan on it. So like, that's kind of the context that we're talking in. So uh, sometimes having background on the incentives of the participants in the conversation helps frame why the conversation's happening. Also, right. most people are just going to be earning an income on a month-to-month basis, and they're just investing some small portion in there. So not most people aren't dealing with a fixed pool of capital that they yeah. have to. Yeah, that's why I think it's important this. to contextualize, yeah. right? Like this is what yeah. why I'm having this conversation. I'm not trying to make some market call or whatever. It's just well, what do you think about like if you're if you're sorry, Mike, you finish your finish your manga manga. No, I, so yeah, derail. I can. I just one to reiterate quickly just what Bill said, just to finish that thought on my end is if you know if you're contributing your 401k never stop contributing the 401 regardless of what you think about the market just keep putting in your 401k and keep buying the s&p 500 whatever index you've decided to buy it makes sense it's a little bit different when you're approaching it is this is my entire like this is where all of my family's wealth is and i'm I'm actively managing it and the question is do you time it do you not time it it's a big question and if you want to try to time it are you going to protect yourself are you going to go active and timing it it's a million questions that I'm, I, I'm not an expert at, at answering any of these questions, but I'd say if the average person, like for my wife and her 403B at, at the hospital, we're, we're never going to stop contributing that. We don't like, I didn't stop contributing in March. We didn't pull it. Nobody else, in my opinion, nobody else should either. The point about uh, Munger, it was a story he told, I think when he did that psychology speech and he was, um, I think that's when it is. He said it's, it was a friend of his had the best advice for how to get really rich. And his answer was, always have $10 million in your pocket. Like that was the answer. <laughs> and he's like, if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. That's great. Like, That's well, great advice. It's, yeah, it's really good advice. It's strong advice. That's like, he's like, the advice is, you know, always have, and the answer is, if you always have a lot of cash, when an opportunity comes, you'll always be able to swim. If you don't have any cash, an opportunity comes, you don't have any cash, an opportunity I've seen some other approaches where, uh, if, if whether you've got a fixed pool of capital, and, you've, and you're always getting some income, like there's some dividend yield and some things are always getting, there's some capital return, things are getting bought out. So you're always getting capital kind of recycled to. And the idea is that if you get uncomfortable with the level of the market, you don't reinvest, which is, I guess, a little bit like you got an income coming in and you're just not investing your income, you're just letting the cash pile up. What, what do you think about something like that? I, I would I would frame it slightly differently. I would say if you don't have any good ideas on your desk, I don't know that I would make it like a market level call. I, yeah, part sure. part of what's going on is like some of the stuff I bought is ripped, and I'm I'm not a hundred percent comfortable with where it trades. So that's some of what's going on. Would you punch also, out of it? Well, that's the thing. Like, no, me me thirty minutes ago says don't make economic decisions based on taxes. Me thinking about writing a tax bill is like, no, nah, I'm not going to punch out. Yeah, makes perfect sense. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. I appreciate do, that. Do as I say, not it's as It's honest. 
I think there's something to Bill's other point about personal finances when you, and to kind of marry that with what Toby was saying, when you have enough cash coming in from yield instruments or preferreds or whatever it is to pay all of your bills, God bless you, pay all of your bills, uh, you don't have to worry about the price risk so much. I mean, you, you know, you can, at that point, you can survive it. You know, your family's going to eat, you're going to pay all your mortgage, everything's going to get paid for. You don't have to worry so much. I think there's something to that. If you're over, you know, so you're, you're, you're earning more to your point about reinvestment and you plan on reinvesting, you can get tactical that way. But like, I mean, how much are we really talking about? Like 2%, you know, like, okay, so I'm really going to change. I always like, I, I kind of chuckle to myself and I didn't mean to call anybody out, but somebody's like, well, I lowered my exposure by 4%. And I'm like, okay, so if the market <laughs> goes down 50%, you save 200 basis points. Like, cool. You know, it's like a way to really put your balls out there, man. Like, well, so one anyway, thing I have noticed in that, you, you're, you're, over five years, I think you get about a third of your capital back from uh, from invest. Like if you put together a portfolio and you hold it for five years, I think that roughly about a third comes back in terms of just like some of the company, like say an N30 portfolio, some of the companies get bought out plus dividends, plus capital returns. You end up with about a third of your cash back. So you've got to be reinvesting that kind of level every five years. Oh, every five years? Yeah, roughly okay. on average. Some, you know, if you go, funnily enough, like if you go through a big drawdown, often just out the other side is where there's a lot of M&A activity because yeah. stuff is cheap, but, but recovered. So people are prepared to sell, you know, if so, nobody wants to sell in, in March, 2009 or March, 2020, because they know that the prices are bad. People are only selling there because they're forced to sell, but like a year yeah. beyond that, everybody's up on their positions. Now they're looking to kind of get out and crystallize what they've made. So there tends to be a lot of, this is just my anecdotal observation of like running lots of back tests that there's a lot of M&A activity about a year from the bottom. Yeah, I think I, I think that's right for what it's worth. I mean, at least I saw that at the board level, nobody will sell at the bottom. I mean, honestly, for your fiduciary duty, you kind of can't because you're basically guaranteed to get sued. So once you see the rebound and stock prices start to come up, if you're tired, you just throw up your hands. You're right, it's 12 months, 18 months, 24 months. I I wonder how much of that too, is that if it's an anchoring bias thing where I got in at this price, I'm down 50%, I'm going to sell as soon as I get back to break even, and then I'm going to, then I'll feel better about this whole thing. For most people, stocks don't care, you know, who owns them and what price they paid, but all of my stocks care deeply about (laughs) the price that I paid. All all my stocks sit around and think about the price I paid and they want to be right by me. Curated, and that's why they're great. Um, uh, One thing that I really admire about how Mike runs his stuff, and like we've talked about this a fair amount because I personally uh, get more comfort from diversification, but like, and I'm I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but like Mike doesn't capitalize his gains in his head. And like when he says like, oh, if all this lumber money just kind of went away, my life was good before my life will be good after. Like, it's not bullshit. And that's like such a strong advantage to not have that lifestyle creep or to like capitalize and, and not have to worry about, okay, well, my fund got paid this year. Now I got next year's hurdle rate or whatever. Like yeah. the way that he approaches uh, his investing, I, I have learned a tremendous amount from Two now, if I can only now. structure my life like his. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Well, you've got a home in Fort Collins, Colorado, Love you, if man. you ever need it. Uh, the other thing is, it's kind of interesting, is I think we'd all agree like Hussman is a really smart guy. And this is his slide deck. Like 
his unhedged strategy, just equity and cash equivalents from inception that he shows would be worth like 52 grand. His strategic growth fund, which I believe is hedged is 10,948. So like, it's like one of those things that like, that is a huge difference because that dude is mad talented at picking stocks. He would be S&P is 31,000. He would return 51,000 unhedged. He's at 11. Like, boy, that hedge better work at some point. It's expensive. Yeah, that's that's life changing money. So I, I don't know. Like, I mean, that that guy's smarter than me. And he's objectively like kind of put himself behind the eight ball in that hedging game. So if he can't do it, can I? Probably not. I'm not trying to go at him. These, this is his slide. No, no, no. I, I'm a big fan of Husbands. Yeah. I got to say. So and am I, I. And I love, I love reading what he writes. I try- well, that's a, that's what I'm saying. I, I'm bringing him up because I have respect for how he does things. I'm the, really the amazing not trying thing to is go at him. He has, he has kept his discipline over an incredibly long period of time, and they make they make small sort of iterative changes to that process all the time, which he fully discloses. I, I don't know honestly what the answer is there. It's it's sort of there, but for the grace of God, go I honestly when I look at when I when I when I look at that. So I, I I I try to figure out what the lesson is. I'd love someone to tell me what the lesson is there. Well, that's what I'm trying to to think through, right? Like I'm really I, this is his slide. It's his presentation. I'm merely saying you can pull it up. Like so, if it's cost him forty thousand dollars since inception on that slide how the hell am I going to do it better than that guy? That guy's a PhD. And like, I really like how he writes. I really like how he lays out his thought process. So maybe I should just not worry about this stuff. Is really The, the thing is, we're, we're probably looking at it trough to peak. And I think to, he he would say, you got to look at it peak to peak or trough to trough. And I don't think we've, but then, you know, I, I would say we haven't seen a full cycle and everybody'd say, well, what was March 2020? And I don't really have a good answer to that either. I don't think that was the full flush. Yeah. Well, that's what you have to say. Yeah, right? like yeah. that's that has to be your answer if that's the position you put yourself in. And I think for the average person, that's probably a tough thing to come back from. He may be able to. I have no, I have no clue. So I think you'll come back. I think that I think you'll have a renaissance, and I think you'll have a good decade coming. But but that's that's largely faith. <laughs> I mean, I think that's no, that's not just faith. I think that's I think that that's objectively, if I sat down and look at the facts, that's what I think. Um, however. The market He'll have earned clearly... it at that point too. Say that again, sorry. He'll have earned it at that point. Yeah, I mean, I think if the market comes back, which I, you know, I don't know if the market's going to come back. I just have no idea. But I just think we're in expensive territory at the moment. That's really like all of the other froth and all the other stuff going on. That's just, it's really neither here nor there for me at the moment. I don't really. That, that's just a timing issue. I I look at the the value of the market, and if you look at where it is trading on a Cape or Shiller any of those kind of metrics, it's expensive and it's historically expensive. And typically what has followed from very high, when it's really expensive like this, very reduced forward returns and lots of volatility in the interim. And I, I still think that's what we're going to see. So uh, that's my bias, just so everybody's clear. Well, we've been clear. Um, if you, <laughs> yeah, I just clearly wrong. Clear. Yeah. <laughs> if so... Are your things so, that you think? Oh, no, you're back. I just heard you then. I was going to say, if you were telling people to go back and look at like what you're looking at, the periods that you're thinking of, like, how would you tell people to, to do their own work on this idea? 
like like looking at the market and how do you think through when you're looking back historically well you can you can look at so you take husband's method husband has a method where he looks at Schiller and uh dividend yield and he says that there's a normalization over a decade and then you can take any point estimate through that and you you can look at what the market actually did do over the subsequent decade and you can run that all the way back I forget where the data goes back to, but it could be 1850, could be as far back as that, 1875, certainly. But you can you can run it like in in modern history too. And then you just look at the performance of the market relative to what this thing projects. And I've got this little chart uh, that I run in real time, pulling data from various uh, just free sites. And it has been quite predictive, but there are certainly periods of time and they're all notorious bull peaks and notorious bear bottoms where the uh, expected return deviates quite materially from what actually transpires. And that's because at a bull peak, the expected return was below where the market actually ended up and, you know, the reverse that for a bear bottom. But on average, like the, the relationship between the two is pretty tight. And when I look at it now, like we're way above uh, the return is way above where you would have anticipated it would have been looking back a decade ago. And the Ford returns are anemic. Like I say this every, every week that I come on, like it just doesn't change that much from week to week. But every, they're getting more anemic every week. <laughs> well, we're at like 0.7% total return and that includes 1.4% of dividends. So the index return is negative 0.7 looking at a decade, assuming that you get that mean reversion back to Schiller P of 16, which that might not be at a reasonable assumption, but I'm just, I want to make that clear that that's what we're expecting. So yeah, I think I just, you could say, like Buffett's been saying this for a long time, is that if rates stay where they are or go lower, if margins stay where they are or, or go, go higher, higher, then the market is probably reasonably priced. And Hussman is basically taking that and saying, well, I think that they're going to, there's reversion to the mean on these two ideas. And therefore, it's pretty expensive. And I, I don't think that they're not saying, they're saying the same thing, but just in slightly different ways. Yeah. Maybe Buffett doesn't. Yeah. I, I just want to make it clear. Like I'm not going at him. I'm, I'm using his slide because I respect how he does his work like that. He's that, transparent. So at least you know yeah, what he's that's thinking. what I'm saying. So I'm not, I'm not trying to be like some guy coming at somebody else. It's not the comment here. It, it, it's more if, I mean, this is a 20 year period. So this is not like some short term thing. So when I'm thinking about hedging and I see him, I mean, I know you can say, well, this is a peak. I get it. But if 20 years isn't long term, I don't know what is. Uh, right? Groundhog day of uh, 20 years. But yeah. Uh, OK, but like the fact of the matter is that's been 20 years. I mean, whether or not it's Groundhog Day, like there's a chance that the assumptions are wrong. True. So when, when are we are we judging? I mean, we live in a world of probability, right? Or- it's funny. It's, oh. I, I, I keep coming back to, I think um, Howard Marks said it the best. He said, you know, being too early is indistinguishable from being wrong. You know, it's, it's like, it, you're you right. Agree with that? You're, I do personally. I, I mean, it timing is really important in this business. If, if you're going to play that game. So if I'm going to play the hedge game, I'm going to play the market decline game. I'm going to play market valuation game. And I'm not saying that that's a bad game to play. I, I think my perspective is I've been trained as a business analyst and as a more incrementally a people analyst. Um, I haven't been trained as a market analyst, so I get, and I haven't been trained as an options analyst. So when I get into the conversations that I, I look at, 
I always start with my portfolio and I always start with my management teams. I want to talk to all of them. I want to know what's going on in their business. That is really interesting to me. And then I look at the overall valuation. I say, was something that I, I like at this price or do I not like it at this price? And every time I do that with my existing portfolio, which takes me about three minutes because it's one thing, uh, I like it, you know, and I'm like, I like it, you know, and I, to Bill's point, I've got a really unique uh, set of circumstances that I'm trying to work out in my head. I got to get the John Malone pickles, got to get figured out and get out of that jar and we'll figure it out. It'll be fine. But I, I feel good about it. But then when I step back and I do all my market thinking and, you know, I, I see things like Burry and I, this conversation about Cape and PE and I'm like, my God, you know, this is, that's true. That's objectively true. And, and if, if you ask me, you know, are interest rates going to stay here again, I'll make uh, my predictions have been terrible for 10 years and I'll keep making terrible predictions. I, I don't really know, but it resonates with me that the setup is terrible, right? So you're like, can they go lower? I mean, yes, but not much. Could they go higher? A hundred percent. You know, so I hate those setups. It seems like it's asymmetrically skewed against me, but the problem is I'm just not good in that realm. And so I always come back and say, well, the number one thing we can do is we can underwrite the right security. We can be confident in our business. We can, to Jake's point, we just, we know what we own. It's our one business. We run it and we do our best. And we just make sure that, you know, when the hurricane comes, cause it will, that are, you know, that we're not over levered, that we haven't extended ourselves, that we can survive the pain. But, you know, gosh, it's so tempting to me, you know, like that table I put out in Slack, I, you know, with, uh, with options and different strikes. I just, I love activity. It's probably one of my bigger downsides. I love being active. I love markets. I love trading. I love it. And I'm terrible at it, but I do love it. And so I just want to <laughs> do something and it's often exactly the wrong thing. One thing, Mike, I'd say is you don't take a lot of you don't take a lot of beta risk because your your thesis are on different kind of and and I know you're doing that purposefully. It's not it's not an accident the way you're doing it. I appreciate that. And the other thing is that in your you know you've got one position on, but that position does turn a little bit on macro pricing in housing and lumber, and so that's where you've got to spend. So it's not like you're you're not able to like divorce yourself completely from macro. And you know we've got we've got you're you're more idiosyncratically to one commodity i have a larger portfolio on where you know right. one of the commodities in my portfolio is interest rates like that the, the price yeah. of money is going to impact the value of that it's probably the biggest commodity you have right now actually if i had to guess right. one thing that's going to move your portfolio is probably interest rates. so when, when when you think about that and the, the the best rule that i ever got out of commodity pricing is that the best guess for where a commodity is going to be in a year is where it is right now and the reason and not because that predicts where it's going to be just because that minimizes your error it's as good a guess as any. I mean, you know, it's just, it's everybody's got a view on interest rates. Everybody's got a view on lumber and none of us are right. It's like, show me the person. Every time somebody comes out with a prediction, myself included, it's like, show me the person that got this right, who told you a year ago that this is exactly where we would be. And that's the person I want to have the conversation with about where we're going to be in a year. It's like, you can't find, they just don't exist. I mean, if you would have given me this fact pattern and told me where, <laughs> where would the 10 year be? after all this money and liquidity and the market and all this stuff, where would the 10 year be? And I'd be like, it's two is the start, right? It could be four. And here we are at one, four, like, you know, and then the fed comes out and says, we're going to raise and it goes down. You know, it's like, clearly this is, you know, yeah, that's the problem. Too hard to predict. If you're not confused, you don't know what's going on. Yeah, that's exactly. It. As, as Jake has pointed out a number of times, you look at the, I'll give you the fact pattern in a year and you'll just be 100% wrong. Cause that's been true. Yeah, no. The last, last rolling like decade, I guess. Well, it's a whole lacy hunting, I think, uh, you know, where like all this debt is, is I, I think the 10 year is telling you that it doesn't buy growth. And I think it's telling you a little bit that it doesn't buy inflation. I mean, we're, we're trading 
on the 10 year where we were in 2012, 2016. Is there a finger on that scale? No, that's the question. Yeah. I mean, does it Is matter? It conspiracy? Yeah, it matters. Not if you're getting Why? Other than you want it not to matter. Like, what do you do? You're not the finger. You have no control over it. So you're like living in that world. It's not a, no, it's not that it's, it's not that I don't have control. I mean, I don't have control, but what, if you were trying to use sort of like the natural order of things to then determine what might be coming next, if there's something external to that, that is not obviously, you know, baked into it, then some exogenous kind of do sex machine type of thing, you know, with the putting their finger on the scale, then you're, you shouldn't be making those kind of guesses at all. Right. Yeah. But let's, let's break down what you just said. If you're trying to assess the natural order of things, but then you're also attributing uh, weight to the finger on the scale. What I would argue to you is the natural order of things doesn't exist or it should your assumption of what it should be is flawed because <clears throat> you live in the world that is not what should be in a textbook. Yeah. I don't take that Jake. I know. Well, so if my counter is that uh, that assumes a level of omnipotence to some of our planning that I'm not sure is as wholly warranted. Oh, I strongly disagree with that. Strongly. What I would say to you is it pushes risk elsewhere. It doesn't assume omnipotence at all. I'm not saying that the people that have the finger know what's going to happen. I do not disagree that it creates a risk, but I do disagree that you can like invest under the assumption that it should not exist or doesn't matter. I'm not saying that you assume that it doesn't exist. What I'm saying is, is that if you try to use logic that of the price of money, really, which is what we're kind of trying to figure out, um, you, you can't very easily do that um, without assuming that there's a, not a finger on there. So the price of it doesn't really tell you the information that you would hope that a, a price that comes out of a natural process would tell you. Right. But the price of it is determined by the supply and demand and people can issue a ton of supplies. So the price goes down because the supply, supply goes up. That's the finger. And like, you can't control the supply. Otherwise, this is why people like Bitcoin. Yeah, say, is, is there something it's like really outside elegant the financial system that solves this? Is there, is there something out there that solves this? It solves know. everything. Have I heard of anything? Well, I'm serious. That's why they like it, right? It's like a very elegant yeah. mathematical solution that, that removes the finger from the scale. But that's not the world we're living in. That's the Bitcoin world. Yet. Yet. Yeah. Soon. Yeah. Did we solve it? Did that happen? I was, I was listening, but I'm not sure <laughs> I don't know. there's an answer in here somewhere. I'm more confused than when we started. Yeah, same. I've enjoyed That's... the conversation, though. It's an interesting topic. I mean, it really is. I mean, you're, you're, I think Toby's framework is exactly right. I mean, it, you know, we're all, we all feel it. I mean, I feel it every day when I wake up. It's just... I'm, I'm bullish because I can't figure out anything else to be. I mean, that's really where we are. I, I just can't figure out what's the alternative to being bullish. It's just nothing. What, what about the Keynesian beauty contest where, you know, everybody's bullish now for all of the reasons. None of us can think of a reason why the market's going to go down. Could that be the reason that the market goes down? Hence the parachute, right? That's, that's the, re that is exactly Sheep. why you just go to, well, what's the parachute and the, other, the, you know, this, you know, duration conversation, you can make it really simple. And right right now for uh, 25 basis points, you can protect yourself against a 50 basis, 50%, uh, so 5,000, 5,000, 50% drop in the market for 25. How, you, how are you doing that? I'm just going to write that down. Just, just puts, you know, just buy puts. You can buy how, how far out of, the, how, out of the money are you? 
you can go uh, for a week 50 percent <laughs> for jan 20 you can just tell you it's jan 2022's uh cost you 25 bips um okay for a 50 percent drawdown five zero percent drawdown what's the and what's the see that your your book is protected or, or how much of your book is protected at that level 50% of your book. I, I have no, I have zero. I bought zero of this, but let's, let's but say you had a million like, of, let's say you yeah. had a million of exposure and you wanted to protect yourself against. Um, so 500,000, you're saying two and a half thousand protects it. Yeah. And, and, but, but only that protection only kicks in down 50%. So you're, you, you can only go down 50%. Yeah. That, that's what I'm saying. That's, that is when you ask me about disaster insurance, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a 30% drawdown is not a disaster. A, 70% or 80% drawdown would be a complete disaster. This is a super cat policy, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 you know, protecting yourself against like getting cancer or something, you know, that's the stuff that you really, it's going to be really expensive and totally terrible, but it's, it's better than the alternative. I mean, that's the other approach to hedging that I really like the, that the only time that you hedge is when it's a trade that is cheap and it kind of makes sense. Like you, you just, you just don't bother when it's expensive. And when you get this point where you're like, gee, the payoff here is, is wrong for the risk that this happens. Like there's a one in three risk that this happens and the payoff is like, it's 10 to one or, or whatever it might be 20 to one. The, the and, price implies an odds that are way different than what you think they are. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of, that kind of drawdown has happened three times in 90 years. So it's, it's, it's not less than 1%. I mean, it's definitionally 3.3% is how much, how often that has happened. And one in a hundred year storm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, to, so there's been a 50% drawdown three times in 90 years. Yeah. Greater than 50%. Yeah. How many, how many 50% drawdowns have there been in the last 20 years? Two. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 2008, oh, you got over that, but for a very short period of time. It was 2000, not a 50% drawdown. Mm. I guess that's more than 20 years now. It definitely was for NASDAQ. I don't know. I'm not sure if S&P got down quite that far, but I think it was pretty close if it wasn't. And what's the other one, Mike? You got to go all the way back to 29 or something. You're making me look this up. I have it on my... Because uh, I would have said there are a few pretty big drawdowns. Well, 73, 74 didn't get down that far. Can we uh, cram in some veggies before we? Yeah, man, let's do it. Get out? Let's do and it. it. Might, I'm going to try to tie it back in uh, if I can. Uh, so I'm reading this terrific book called Deep Survival, and it's about all these different, uh, basically like climbing accidents, airplane crashes, uh, like what you know, boat shipwrecks, all these like pretty harrowing stories of people out there taking these risks, right? And um, the analogies for what we do are obvious and plentiful. And I'm, I'm probably going to do like multiple parts of this over the next few weeks. But the first one I'm doing is on in 2002, uh, this, there's these like four guys that were climbing Mount hood and you, and it's that, that particular climb is considered a beginner's climb, which is actually like one of the most dangerous things that anyone could ever say is like, this is a beginner's climb because then people don't prepare. They take stupid risks. Right. Um, but what ends up happening is that the, as you're working your way down, um, you know, it's like this big ice field basically that you can kind of hike, but these guys are, they're t- connected to each other in, with harnesses. Um, and so what you, what they do is they, you know, the guy at the top is kind of the anchor and then the guy below him, you know, he's attached to him with a rope and he'll like belay him, which means like let rope out to let him down a certain amount. Um, so in this particular instance, you had a guy up at the top who we'll call a, uh, a guy 35 feet down from him who, who was B, 
uh, C was 70 feet below him. And then D was 105 feet. Um, so you basically like these guys are all stretched out on, on multiple ropes. Well, what's important is that the top guy can't fall, right? Cause if, if the other guys fall, they can only fall so far before someone else arrests them. Um, so what, what ends up happening is that, uh, of course the top guy falls and he ends up, then he's traveling about 30 miles an hour by the time that the rope gets taut with the guy that's was that directly below him. So it yanks him off of the, of the, his, you know, and all these guys had been practicing their fall arresting, which is like, you have this ice ax and you basically like jam it into the snow and then lay on it. And that like, you know, is like an anchor. Um, so they all do it, but because they, there was, there's so much stored energy when you're up together like that. Um, it, it actually goes back to this, that, uh, that segment we did on like normal accidents, like the, the nuclear meltdown and all those things. Like you have a very complex system, high energy along with tight coupling, right? Cause they're tied to each other. So anyway, it cascades and each guy pulls the next one off of the mountain. And now they're all sliding and bouncing around and the rope, because it, a rope is an interesting thing from a physics standpoint, because it's able to transmit force along it in lots of like very interesting, weird ways. Um, you know, it'll, go, it'll stretch, it'll pull someone else another direction. So these guys are just like, you know, cruising down the mountain. They end up hitting two other guys that were below them, wrapping the rope up in them. And then that gets pulled down. Uh, and then it hits like four more guys. Uh, and then they all crash into like the side of a wall and then down into like a crevasse and like half of them end up dying. Um, the other half are like just shredded. Right. Um, well, what's, what's important. I think the analogy that we can make is that, that psychologically, mentally, spiritually, even you have to be very careful about who you're tied to and if they are going to fall off and potentially pull you down. Right. So you, you think about your friends that you talk about investing with um, maybe where you work. If you're in the investment industry, you're, you're effectively tied to those people um, psychologically, right? Because we're kind of a herd species. Like we we're very influenced by the people around us. Like you become the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Right. So when we're climbing uh, you know, this mountain and if someone is to fall off in our group and maybe pull another person down, right. And then they pull the next person down. Um, there's a kind of a cliche in the climbing community that, uh, being tied in together is basically like signing a suicide pact, right? Uh, so we, we, we all are potentially signing suicide pacts of making suboptimal decisions if we get too influenced by the people that were around us. So I, you know, sometimes I think you almost have to be willing to like cut your rope when, if everyone else is losing their minds around you and maybe pulling you off of the mountain. Um, and the higher that we get in this mountain, which maybe correlates to some of the things we were talking about as far as how expensive things are, the setup, um, boy, like maybe I need to be free climbing now and not tied in with everyone else around me because we have a ton of energy. We have a very complex system. We have a lot of interconnectedness. Um, maybe that's not the time to be tied in with everybody. Uh, so some interesting analogies uh, in these life or death kind of situations. And I'm, I'm going to come back in the next few weeks. And I've got some more of them that might be kind of fun. So somebody wants to know, do you read these stories to your kids? They get a bit out of it. I should just scare the shit out of them. Like half of them died. It was a disaster. So just remember who you tie yourself. <laughs> Good night. Sleep. Yeah. Yeah. And by Sleep the way, it was, 
It was a super scary death as they fell off of a <laughs> cliff and knew they were going to die. It was fantastic. All the way down. Well, that's they the thing, though. Like, it probably happened through. in less than five seconds because, you know, they the first guy falls and it's like two seconds. He's going 30 miles an hour already, right? right? And he's he, they're just like going down this thousand foot face in five seconds and then they're all wadded up down at the bottom together. I think that there's, I, I like that analogy, but I, I think that the, the time that you need to be careful in investing is uh, as you're ascending the mountain. Because I think that as you get closer and closer to the peak, everybody starts cheering and, and having fun. And that's the time when it's most dangerous. So totally unrelated. I'm taking a fairly long Twitter break. I'm on Twitter every now and again, but I'm mostly off these days because it's all got a little bit loopy for me. So Twitter is totally tying yourself to a bunch of other people's opinions, letting that soak in. Um, I mean, it's a looser tie probably than you talking with your friends or in a Slack channel like you guys have. But if you want it a lot, but gets into your mind, gets deep into your soul. No six, doubt. Six, I'd like to kid. say that I'm very glad I got on Twitter and it got in my mind. It's made me much smarter. I would have been a dumbass without it. I probably would have lost everything. In you got to curate who you follow, who you pay attention to. Ooh, curate. That's Thank right. You, oh, shit. Yeah, there you go, <laughs> if only Dave Venable could cook it up for me. <sighs> Full circle. I like that story, Jake. That was a, that's a good, I, it, it, in my mind, I'm thinking like, it really matters who you partner with. It really, really, really matters. Like just, it matters. You know, and it, it's just keeps kind of coming down to that. Well, that's a good point. But how do you, like the, most of the time, like, you know, they say that pilots, it's it's like driving a bus 99% of the time, and then 1% of the time you need to fight a pilot who knows what to do. Like, given that that is the case, it's probably true also in investing. Like, 99% of the time it's incredibly boring and there's nothing much fun going on. Then 1% of the time it's just brown undies time, you know, and, and you don't really know your uh, what your partner's going to be like through that kind of time. So how do you, how do you stress test them before the event? It's impossible. At least if somebody knows, I don't know. I, I, um, you know, the guy that I, I invest with, uh, who I, who does the private deals and I do the public deals, we do them all together, Brian Jacoby. Um, he and I have been friends for a decade. I had no idea and we invested together, but I had no idea what it would be like to invest with them, our own capital and in a time of stress. And he and I, uh, from February through really through the end of July spoke every day, invested together and did very, very well. So for me, he's, he's like my ride or die. I know exactly what it's going to be like if, if stuff hits the fan and we've got a 40% drawdown, I know exactly what he's going to say. I don't know any other way to do it than to just do it. Maybe there is a way, uh, but, and by the way, I, I had some, some friends where it was the exact opposite of that in that exact scenario where I, I expected them to do something based on all the conversations and the thought process we had before and they did the exact opposite of what I would have expected. Um, so, and it, I mean, it's totally fine. It's not positive or negative. It's just, that's good information to have. Right? I mean, as we've, as we've pointed out, like there are many theoretical, there are many theories that we all like to embrace, but when it comes to our own money, we sort of, sometimes you just want to take the, the irrational approach because it, it does, the irrational approach makes more sense in your individual scenario. It is amazing. People, the fear of losing money, what that does to people. It's really remarkable, actually, when you, you have to see. You, I don't know if you can predict it, but you know it when you see it. I mean, it, it, it affects people very differently. People get very, very weird. It's like what Bill was saying about capital. That's part of the reason why I think capitalizing your gains until you realize it is a mistake, because when you get into that loss position, when the, the fear just grips you, it turns you into a very different person, at least 
people that I've interacted with in my investment career all become very different when they become afraid of losing money. Well, at the chemical level, I mean, it's Correct. changing. You. Yeah, there's nothing they can do. Yeah, it's there's, physical. There's nothing it's they physical. can do. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's just, it just takes over, you know, and that's, that's what I say until you see it, you don't really know what it's going to look like. I think you want to be literally like your, your amygdala is, is yeah. driving the show then. Right. Cause it's a survival thing, right? Like right. you didn't, you don't have time for executive processing right. in those. You don't feel like you do in those situations. And so the amygdala takes over and it, it has first lean on, on controls of this machine. Right. Because it, it got you got us to an evolutionary place, but, but it's not, it doesn't fit the, our world now. No, um, that same markets. fear response. No. I like Kane's take on it when he's when in 1929 he was running a few different accounts, King's College and some insurance companies' accounts, and one of the insurance companies made him liquidate all of his positions. But he said to the King's College and to the other insurance company, "If we liquidate now, then there's no chance of recovery, and if it keeps on getting worse from here, then you know it's going to be Mad Max Thunderdome in the streets anyway." So, really, the only path here is to stay invested and to ride this thing back up. Not committed. I think it's true. Pot committed. Yeah. Are you guys ready for the, uh, the 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 periods where we had more than a fifty percent drawdown? I hit it in our direct message channel and Twitter, so you all have this. And I I texted it to you, Bill, so you have it too. Uh, two thousand October two thousand seven, fifty six point eight percent of a seventeen month duration drawdown, which is about the average. About eight big drawdowns of like more than thirty percent. They usually last eighteen months. I least. thought it was three weeks and then in it was the over world. and then you get yeah, to no, now, now we've, we've discovered a new financial system. So now they only have to last a few weeks. Flash crash. Historically they were 18 months. <laughs> so uh, September, 2000, the drawdown was, was just under 50%, 48.9 peak to trough. That was a 25 month or by the way, that's like, you know, that's, that's crazy. Long. That'll long. grind you. The worst was uh, September, 1929, obviously. Uh, that's 86%, 86. Can you imagine that? 86% of your purchase power is gone. Woo. Brutal. And then uh, March, 1937, that was a 13-monther, so relatively short. It was 53.8%. 37. That's a, an unusual day. What, what's the, is that what World War II, lead up to World War II? What's the, what's the reason for that one? You know, I just Great, reported the numbers here. I don't give the context. <laughs> <laughs> what 70 yeah, I, was 73 74 where'd that go uh january 1973 that was down 48.2 uh okay, that was in the neighborhood yeah it was a 21 month uh duration slowdown i i did this because uh in 2018 when i was having like a really really tough year uh at work i wanted to myself for my own psychology but then also for my firm i wanted to put it in context like our the drawdown that i was having i wanted to put it in the context of historical material drawdowns that drawdown was two months old when i built this and i was down 11 percent, and it was like <laughs> the end of the world and i'm like guys like <laughs> this is nothing like this is you if, you, if you're going to invest in, in public markets you have two choices so it's just like what bill was saying you have two choices you can either say I'm cool with a 45% 18-month drawdown. I'm cool with it. I don't love it, but I'll, I'll get through it and it'll be fine. And by the way, we'll do what we can. We'll move pieces around. We'll try to buy into it. We'll lean into the pain. As Steve Cohen would say, let's lean into the pain. That's the right answer. Or you can do Sussman does, which is I'm always going to be protecting against that 45% drawdown. And that's going to cost me an awful lot of money in the good times. You know, it's, it, and I'm not saying one is right or wrong. I mean, they're both strategies. You just have to kind of pick it. I've learned that I'm way better off just letting it, you know, grip it and rip it, so to speak. And then just dealing with the fallout when it happens and just saying like, look, we are going to get over it. It's going to be fine. I mean, 
and then just like that that has worked for me historically so that's why i put that table together so now Values. you all have the table Value Stock Geeks says in 37, they thought they were out of the 29, 32 recession and started raising rates and easing off the new deal. Suckers. Value they should have printed. Geek. That print, dude's print. crazy smart. Shout that out to brilliant. you, Value Stock Geek. Thank you, Value Stock Geek. One, one more from him too. We think of the depression as one long slog, but it was really two absolutely brutal recessions. There we go. Same as 73, 74. That was two. Yeah. Back to yeah, back. Talk actually. to him in real life too. Nice guy. Big shout out to Value Stock Geek. Nice to see you here, man. Didn't didn't we have a Federal Reserve back then too? What happened? They didn't have no, the modern no technology. Oh, they now the they got it all figured out. Okay, oh, cool. Computers. Two words. Shit has changed. That's time. That's blockchain. that's time, amigos. This is really fun. Uh, we'll be Do I back. Have one more, or was this my last one? You have you have one more. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Sorry to everybody out there. You got me one more time. We'll uh, see everybody next week. Move with the rhythm. Shake it up, stop when the clock hits 13. Sing one, one.